This is Ian Freebairn-Smith, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives and music. Today we are very pleased and honored to have Snuffy Walton with us, uh, the West Wing, if you don't know anything else, the West Wing. And I have to read this because my memory is like a sieve these days. Uh, Once and again, the Drew Carey Show, Roswell, Providence, Norm, Three Sisters, The Street, and First Years. When do you have time to do all that? Would you come up here, please, Snuffy Walton, and tell us when you have time to do that and what you did before the West Wing? My name is Snuffy Walden, I'm a recovering sideband. <laughs> you know, I, I gotta be honest, I, I look around the room and I see some of the names in some of these spaces and I really, you guys are a lot of great artists and have really honed your craft for years and years. I'm a late comer to this so I feel not, I feel truly honored to, to be invited and a little, uh, a little out of my league if, if I might say. I was talking to a, a couple of guys at, at a, an ATS meeting, and they were uh, they were talking about these you know these young guys, these hummers who never you know never studied and never learned to do this and never learned to write and didn't go through the the hard work. And I kept my mouth shut because I was kind of one of those guys. And, um, <laughs> and I thought about what they were saying, and I thought you know did I pay my dues? Uh, I was born in the South, born in Louisiana. We pulled together and raised in the South and, and started playing when I was about five. My family wasn't particularly musical. My dad played a little fiddle and my mom played a little piano. And they put me on a Hawaiian steel guitar at the age of five. And I don't know why. I don't remember anything about playing a Hawaiian steel guitar, but I do remember tying a broomstick with string around my neck and miming Elvis Presley tunes. I mean, that's what I remember from my early musical days. I, I played a lot of I played in, in high school band, and I played trombone and baritone, and I played took piano lessons for three or four years. But it never really spoke to me as wanting to be a professional musician. I, I always loved music and was always playing it. And uh, I had bands when the 60s came in, had rock and roll bands, and, and thoroughly enjoyed it, intended to be a doctor and went into college at age 16 with a double major math and pre-med and started a, uh, an FM underground radio show and started playing blues guitar and strip joint and within a year I dropped out of college and uh, six months after that I dropped off the FM radio show and I was working at a strip joint for 12 bucks a night and having the time of my life and my family who was in the oil business uh, disowned me and but pretty when I and I bring that up because I was thinking about did I pay my dues from 1967 on probably for the next 10 years I slept with my guitar That's all I did was play. I played in the morning when I got up I played until I got to bed at night I didn't 
study it per se in school, but I lived it um, and followed it around, moved from, from Texas to Memphis and started kind of a recording career in Memphis during the time when American Studios was open and the stacks bands and uh, people like Ronnie Millsap were working there and BJ Thomas and I kind of toured with them never never really never really even thinking about you know there again it was the 60s and you know I was a child of the 60s and there was a it was a, more of a lifestyle shall I say than, than a study but I did a lot of things, and I did rock and roll bands, and I went to England and recorded a few albums of my own. And, uh, came back to Los Angeles, and because I hadn't studied, found myself in a peculiar position. I could, wasn't really up to the level of the, the Dean Parks and the George Deerings. They were great sight readers and could play anything, and they were doing a lot of studio work, and I really didn't come from that. I, would, uh, I was doing record work as a side man and doing very stylistic work and, and I kind of hit bottom. I, I watched you know a career just kind of drifting along and uh, with drugs and alcohol I kind of got myself in trouble so I kind of quit the business and uh, got called back into it in an odd way I was uh, there was a friend of mine from Texas who was out here who was pursuing a record deal and she had a fella who I didn't know much about at the time who was producing a bunch of demos on it. His name was Johnny Mandel. And, and I went, they called up and she said, listen, this guy's pretty, we don't have a guitar player. It's only 25 bucks a song. Would you come do this? I went, yeah, sure. So I showed up at the studio and I met Johnny. And he was great. Now I, had, I was thinking $25 a song, you know, we'll do two or three songs a day. Well, not with Johnny. With Johnny, we were, you know, working three or four days on a song. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, but we go back to his place out on the cliffs in Malibu afterwards, and I was thinking, oh, this is a good life. This is great. So I think I made a hundred bucks for the three weeks' work or something we did. But I really enjoyed meeting Johnny, and we, we had we spent a lot of time talking, and he was he was so smart about music, and, and after I spent some time with him, I got to know a little bit more of his credits and, and what he'd done. And, and could see not only was he a successful man, but I, I loved his his concept and his idea about what he did. And there was just something that appealed to me. Uh, although, to be honest, I had was not thinking of being a composer at the time. It never really crossed my mind. But Johnny knew I was broken. He was very, and when we finished his project, he was very grateful. He said, you know, I'm going to help you out someday. He said, what would you like if you could have anything? I said, oh, it'd be great to have a boat. I'd just love to have a boat, just go fishing my own. And about six months later, I got a phone call, and uh, I picked up the phone, and it was John. I said, hey, Johnny, how are you? He said, what color? <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean, what color? He said, what color? What color what? What color boat? And I said, well, why did you ask? He says, because I'm about to do a movie, and I want you to come do it with me. And it was a film he was doing, uh, the second Travolta movie called Stay Alive. And he was working in his normal sense and working with an orchestra. He was also working with a band, which was uh, Stallone's brother. I can't remember. Frank Stallone, of course, you would know. She's going to mimic me too. It was Frank Stallone's band was doing it. And I think Johnny was really kind of intimidated by this New York kind of rock and roll ensemble. And he wanted me there to kind of interpret for him and to be his input on that level. And he brought me in, 
And I had just gone through kind of quitting the business for a little while and recovering from uh, addiction and that kind of thing. So I was broke and I owed a lot of money. And, and Johnny brought me in and kept me on those triple golden, double golden, over Sunday night, 24-hour sessions for a month. And, and I watched him work. And, and I was always fascinated. And he was always kind of coming to me from the player point of view which was interesting to me that he could do both. He could write a beautiful score, and then he could also just talk to me because I wasn't a school player. He could talk to me from an emotional point of view that, that I could understand what he, was, what he was talking about in terms of what he needed for a scene. And the last couple of days, we were working on a, a live segment. I, and he had me in there with orchestras, and I was trying to count bars and was really intimidated and you know, with sweat bullets, and he just kind of nods to me. He wanted me to play, and I'd play, and he'd be happy, and then we'd fix it later. And, and he said, we had the sequence we had to do right, right at the end, and it was a slow-motion dance sequence, and he just wanted me to improvise to it. That's the first time I'd ever done that to film, uh, playing music to film, and I was absolutely mesmerized. It involved me in a way that, that only the special times when I was communicating with other musicians. That's the only way I can describe it. It was, it transcended for me to communicate with what was going on on the screen and, and be emotional with that and find the marriage which created so much more than anything I was doing or to me so much more than just the film was doing. Fascinated me and it was my first real touch, I believe, for what's, for what turned out to be, you know, such a blessing of a career that I've had. And I'll just never forget, it was absolutely magical for me. And I didn't think anything more about it. I went on and, and it kind of got me back in the music business. So I started touring as a sideman again with you know, Shaka and Donna Summer and different people. And in 1986, um, I'm very much a late comer to this business. In 1986, I was playing a live gig at a club called At My Place where I played a lot with some buddies of mine, Michael Ruff, and uh, Ralph Humphrey, and Jimmy Johnson. And got approached by some agents who said, listen, Ry Cooter's kind of priced himself out of the business on guitar scores, and there's really a need for it. Would you be interested? And, and I had seen the handwriting on the wall for me as a side man. You know, I was in the, the days of the quote-unquote virtuoso rock guitar player was gone. Uh, music was really changing. Uh, I was getting older, uh, I was interested in a different kind of life, and I said, sure. So I went up for two or three films, and I didn't have a reel because I'd never written a piece of music. I mean, I'd done solos, I'd written songs, but I didn't have anything to send to anybody. And I went up for two or three films and got up to the maybe the last stages. And, uh, some guys, you know, everybody who was, was chasing those things, they beat me out. And then I got a phone call, and they said, there's this TV show that really is looking for something different. And they talked to everybody in town, would you just go meet with them? And I said, yeah, and I went and met with them, and I talked to this guy for 15 or 20 minutes, and he told me what he was looking for, which was this weird, quirky music. And, and I wasn't really a television fan, so I didn't know what was a traditional television score to me. And uh, I talked to him out of some film and took it home and, and had a four-track TX tape recorder and just sat and played to the film for a couple of weeks. Well, actually, what I really did is I would play for an hour and then I'd go crawl in bed and pull the sheets over my head because I, 
I knew I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was just trying to find some communion between the film and something I was doing. And I worked for a couple of weeks on it and, and wrote four cues and called all my friends who had small studios and said, you know, if you'll help me get this back to tape and into the picture if I get the show, I'll split it with And everybody said no. And at the last minute, a buddy of mine said, listen, two days, I've got an afternoon on Thursday, come over and we'll do it. And I went over and I did it and I sent it in and I didn't hear a thing. And I figured they hated it because it was really kind of odd with acoustic guitar and percussion and accordion. And I thought nobody wanted that. And I started looking at television shows that was all orchestral at the time. So they were about to make a deal with somebody else and they happened to pop the audio cassette and they really liked it. Then they put the video cassette in and they loved the way it worked with music and they called us up and we went over and they signed us up that day to do a show called 30 Something. And it was literally the first cues I'd ever written. And, and I was really new. I was way out of my league, but I thought I had an opportunity to do something for two or three years. And so I dove in and went full board and started working 14 hours a day, seven days a week to try to learn what this craft was and, and, and how it was you all trained for so long to learn how to do this. We were talking at the table about they were trying to limit it in the old days, trying to come up with some, I said the old days, I guess it must have been the 70s, when they were trying to limit it to two minutes a, a day of writing for a composer. I don't know how you all, I don't know how you all did that, and I don't know how I, how I do what I have to do now, except that you sit down and you've got the blank page, and you just kind of, for me, I just go until it's done, or until I either run out of time or money. It seems to be, Kind of the nature of the beast today. That show came on the air. Nobody expected the show to do well. It did extremely well. And about three months later, I got approached to do another little show called The Wonder Years, which premiered after the uh, after the Super Bowl that year. And it was a big hit. And that year, the very first year I had written any music, uh, I was nominated for an Emmy for a main title that I'd written. Uh, 30-something won the Emmy for Best Drama, and Wonder Years won the Emmy for Best Drama. So, I came to this thing way out of left field. With that information, imagine how it feels to me when Ian asked me to come speak to you guys. I mean, just very intimidating. But I only have one story, and this is the only story I can tell you guys, and it's, it's what's happened to me, and, it's, and, and I will tell you this, it's been the biggest blessing in my life, and I believe it's been handed to me. And my job has been to do the footwork, which is which has never been easy, and it always takes up a lot of time, but it's always been rewarding. Because the moment I can write a sketch and then sit back and pull out of it and watch the film and the music come together, when it speaks to me, there's no reward. It's as great as that. And that's probably what has kept me going more than anything. And, and, I, and I've been blessed. I mean, I've done more, I think, I've been blessed with as many quality vehicles as I could ever as I could ever hope for. Uh, after I did those two shows and they ran for a little while, the very next show that uh, that first summer I did a, a TV movie and I, I did it with a friend of mine and it was a little movie called Winnie. But I got to work with an orchestra that time and we were, but we did it very strange way. We were working with cello quintets and. 
we'd have a string section here, or uh, Bobby Bruce would come play fiddle, or you know, and and I always approached it as an artist from an artist point of view. When I was doing the thirty something scores, I was playing them all. Same with Wendy years. So I came at it always from as a player. How do I communicate with the film? And I tried to do that as I expanded my palette a bit, and and got to work with these wonderful musicians that we have in this town have been smart enough and blessed enough to make a point of using the pool of talent we have here on everything I've done for the last 17 years, even if it's, you know, just having Dean Parks in and Michael Fisher playing, you know, playing color. The collaboration of bringing these people in and, and bringing the expertise that they bring to, to what I call my little sketch. I, Dean would walk in and I would say, Dean, this is the layout, and these are the timings, and this is a sketch. Now make it music. You know, and because it's the, it's the world I came from. I came from the collaborative world of being in bands. And, and when I was first introduced to this, that's the way Johnny kind of taught me. That's the way he interacted with me, and I've tried to interact the same way. And the very first show I got after these two shows went off the air was a, a lovely show uh, about this black woman in the 50s called I'll Fly Away. And I looked at it, and I had been a guitar player all my life, and fiddled a little on piano. But I knew if I did another guitar score, it was the end for me. Because I would, from that point on, only be the, guitar, the guy who did guitar scores. So I bought a piano, and I didn't score all on piano, and wrote the theme on piano. And, you know, and I got to get Randy Kerber to play Randy Kerber's beautiful, you know, expressive pianist, and, and, and I was blessed. And, and I think all these things, you know, I've been at the right place at the right time so many times. Uh, I think, if anything, the, the real gift I was given is that I was given the ability at some moments in time when I get out of the way to hear God's music. And then to be able to try, in my limited way, to express it and, and give it to others. And I can't take credit. I, I wish I could. I wish I could say I studied and I went to Berkeley and I went to you know, study in England, but I didn't. You know, I played the instrument that I've played since I was 16 all my life. And, and I'm, you know, if you put a jazz chart in front of me and put a gun to my head, I'd have to tell you to pull the trigger. <laughs> I, it's, just, I, it's just not my world. And uh, I think I, I arrived and they asked me if I'd be interested right at a time when this business was really changing, when computers were just starting. And, uh, and I embraced them because I didn't have the chops you guys. I didn't have the, the, the tools to put the colors that I felt and heard on paper. But I could play, and I could express myself as an artist that way. And I think all those things just lined up the right show 30-something, which was a groundbreaking show, the right time when computers were coming in, the right sound. Who else was playing percussion and guitar, you know, strumming guitar under dialogue and playing percussion? You know, basically, they told me about a year later that you can't do that. You're not really allowed to play percussion under a soft dialogue. I say, you know, I didn't know. I, I really didn't know. If they'd asked me to do a string score, you know, I'd have had to pass. So really, I see it's, it's a whole bunch of blessings that's been lined up in a row for me, and, and I've 
been willing to do the footwork, willing to, to know and always know that I'm a student. And invariably when I get in a room uh, with all you fabulous musicians, it, it took a long time, it took about six or seven years. I remember I was nominated for for an Emmy for a score I did for Stephen King called The Stand. And that year, uh, the fellow who wrote for Clint Eastwood, I know you won. Yes. Many won for something that he had done uh, with Clint that year. And I stood up and I cheered for him, and it, it was the best gift I had ever been given. Because at that moment, for the first time, I felt like I belonged. And, and I have been going to those things, I've been nominated before, and always going, really kind of feeling like a sharp, really feeling like I was, you know, dressing up to look like an imposing, but really didn't feel like that. And that night, when he won, I cheered, and it was the, it was the best gift I've ever been given, because I really left that night feeling like I was part of this community, even though I came at it from I've been blessed with great vehicles, wonderful vehicles. You mentioned uh, the West Wing. I had done a show before the before the West Wing actually happened. I had been doing a show called Sports Night with Aaron Sorkin, and it was his first foray into television. And he was a huge fan of 30s. So he had called me and asked me if I'd do it. And it's a good time. I love it. It's great. And I did it, and they were, we were scoring, a, it was a half-hour television show, we were scoring it weekly because it was a little drama as well as, it wasn't just, you know, gags and uh, transition stuff. It was really some dramatic underscoring. I really enjoyed working with them. And at the end of the year, they said, we're going to do this pilot. And I handed him a score of this, this uh, script, and I read it, and it was fabulous. I said, I really want to do it. And he said, oh, great, well, we don't know what we want yet. We want a piano score, a guitar score, or something. And they got through shooting the pilot, and they called me, and they had me come down to the office, and they said, listen, so we've been looking at this, and we started putting in some John Williams, and it's really working good. And I went, oh, great. My wife worked, I met my wife, at the same year, by the way, that I started doing 30-something, I met my wife, who was working for Spielberg then, and so she knew John and all these folks. And, uh, I, I knew what they were just about to do to me. And, and they were very honest. They said, you know, can you work with orchestra? And I did the, you know, typical musician thing, of course, sure. <laughs> well, what am I saying? No. Uh, and, and I had in different arenas, I had no idea what they were about to throw at me. And I had no idea if I was going to be emulating an orchestra or if we were going to have a little 20-piece group or whatever. And we talked about it. And we had a meeting, and, and, and everyone at the meeting production meeting earlier on said, well, you know, we, we can't do it orchestral. John Wells said, why? He said, well, because we can't afford it. We need at least, you know, at least 50 piece to make it have any, any kind of size at all, and it's going to cost all this money, and we can't afford it, we can't advertise it. And John said, have you asked the union if they'll do it? Everybody around the room, well, everybody around the room the Warner brother, uh, the guy who does all the litigation and all that, said, no, 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 they won't do it. And John said, well, let's ask them. So I started asking around with a couple of buddies of mine, and uh, started talking to David Lowe and, uh, and Sandy, and said, you know, is it possible? And you couldn't directly address that. It had to just kind of be in the background. The next thing you know, we kind of formulated a, a low-budget agreement for first-year series. 
were able to do uh, the first year under that agreement, which which we were hoping, and I was kind of hoping for myself, because I had been accused by good friends of mine who did a lot of orchestral work of kind of ruining the business <laughs> in terms of the orchestral stuff once I did 30 seconds or 20 years, because all of a sudden these small ensemble scores, which had nothing to do with me, it just had to do with the trend of the business. So I was tickled to do it, not only because it was right for the show, but because maybe I could you know, polish up my image a little bit, <laughs> instead of being the guy who kind of ruined it. And we ended up being able to do the first year with a, with a 50 piece group, and it was great. It was wonderful to work with. And I worked with fabulous musicians, and some wonderful orchestrators, Brad Dector being my key guy. And, and that show went on to, to be quite successful. And, and, and I've collaborated in so many different ways, and, and, and I, I believe I can't take credit for any success I've had, really. I, I talked about this. I was given the honor of the Richard Kirk Award at BMI, and and really I, I took it and I took it with all in mind all the guys I've worked with all, all these years, not, and not only just orchestrated, but the musicians. I mean, I and I, I thank them all because I really feel like I've co-labored with these people, and that's really what the term collaboration is about. Right? I really feel I've brought what I could to the table, and then asked them to, to bring their goods, and I have never been disappointed. And I've been blessed with a group of wonderful, talented, caring people—people people who are really involved and, and care deeply about the craft and what they do. And so, you know, all of what I—I I, I feel part of the community now. I—I I, I do feel like it's a constant. And I hope I feel like that for the next 30, 40 years. I'm really blessed and honored you guys would have me speak today. And pass any particulars, you know, any uh, particular odd odd times, and maybe like when they put me up on the stand and asked me to conduct. I remember one, <laughs> one time they asked me, I was so scared when I got up on the stand to, to conduct, and I don't do that anymore, by the way. That we got to the piece, and I was holding like this, and I had the horn guys playing, and I'm looking down the score, I'm trying to remember, and the horn guys are trying to blow. You know, I didn't cut them off, and I, <laughs> I didn't know. I just didn't know. I never went to school and didn't learn those things. So, you know, there's a million really humiliating, embarrassing stories I could share with you guys. I, I don't know if that's really important today. Uh, I'll go with it. No, I know. You love those things. You know, I just, I really want to thank you all. The people who went before me, really, I never dreamed there was this kind of career, and I never dreamed I'd have the opportunity to do something that is so resonating with me and that has given, given me such an opportunity to share what I believe is originally God's gift and, and the music, because really the music that's come from me, I think the things that have been, that have truly held and have truly uh, been wonderful pieces have really come to me that, that I can't take care of. And, and I am truly grateful for the opportunity to be that messenger. If you have any questions, you are more than welcome to them. Otherwise, I want to thank you guys for coming. Well, we thank you. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. 
We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Ian Freebairn-Smith on behalf of the board, and I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, master classes, and our annual Golden Score Awards Banquet. For a complete list of our podcasts and DVDs, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Larry Goldman of Balboa Studios for recording this talk and to Elliot Barker of Elbar Media for editing it for broadcast.